Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, my name is Suzanne Rebecca, and I'm going to be reading the title story from my short story collection, Death is Not an Option. It's the first night of the retreat, the slideshow is starting, and I pray to be spared from the Free Willy song, which the school administration geniuses have decreed the anthem of our senior year. And this is nothing new. Every year they carefully pick the shittiest song they can find to represent Sacred Heart. Freshman year, it was You Can't Touch This. The year after, it was Woomp, There It Is. License plates and bumper stickers were made up. Each new attempt to convince us they're down with our jive talk is more horrific than the last. This is even worse than last year, when Mr. Greeley brought in a rockin' hymn about how ballistic Jesus was and substituted it for the regular hymns in glory and praise, and every Mass we took communion to the sounds of Our God is an Awesome God, which featured a drum machine and a white snake guitar solo. It made me wish I had lived in the pre-Vatican II days when everything was in Latin and the nuns beat you with rulers. For a while, I keep my mind off the horror by fondly recalling the time I devised a custom-made vocab self-test in preparation for the SATs. I created my own analogies. I did fill-in-the-blanks with tricky look-alike multiple-choice options like aesthetic and aesthetic. Then I let it sit for a while before I took it, Drinking strong tea and making obscene anagrams out of saints' names. That was fun, too. I got a 780 verbal. I got a scholarship to Brandeis, which will enable me to escape the acid-precipitating, mutant-amphibian-producing industrial wasteland of Muskegon. But I don't even care. I keep telling my parents, let me take it again, I'll get an 800 this time. Not until the GREs roll around prep guides thick as phone books, while I once again enter the glorious realm of vocab memorization. Kyra leans in, close in the dark, and hisses, Does this song actually have a name? Or is it referred to only as Free Willy? I don't know, I say, but it makes me hate whales. It makes me want to go harpoon one. How come there are no pictures of us in this slideshow, Kyra says. She runs a hand through her glinty blonde hair, and a whiff of fake papaya mousse hits me. Are we not worthy of Free Willy? She's right. We, Kyra and me, and Sasha and Gretchen, were forced to pose for cheesy pictures six months ago on Spirit Day for the purpose of later seeing ourselves in this slideshow at the end-of-the-year weekend retreat at St. Monica's Cabins. The slideshow is apparently so peerless in its majesty that they couldn't even wait for us to unpack before forcing us to view it. We got off the bus from Muskegon and were immediately herded to the main lodge, through all this blue-green undergrowth riddled with Lyme disease-carrying ticks dragging all our shit after us because the Sacred Heart Showcase just couldn't wait. And it's not like we flipped off the camera. We're too refined for that. We are pissed, and we hate Sacred Heart, but we are refined. But we didn't smile, either. Gretchen had her I'm-too-sexy-for-my-shirt look going, the horizon-gazing supermodel pout. The rest of us just slouched like disaffected youth, which is probably why none of our pictures made it into this touching retrospective, despite the fact that we are the sole members of the student body who are literate and unlikely to get knocked up in a trailer or convicted of date rape by graduation. I started getting a weird feeling during the umpteen stills from last semester's Festival of Faith talent show featuring Amber Golan's interpretive dance. 
streamers in a leotard were involved, to R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion. She ruined that song for me forever, not to mention she completely missed the point. It's called Losing My Religion, not Celebrating My Patriarchal Religion with a cheesy streamer dance featuring my huge camel toe. But Mr. Grayley, the creative director of the whole travesty, ate Amber's performance up because it contained the word religion. I craned my head to peer down the aisle at Mr. Grayley, roosting there like an overgrown and demented Chucky doll with his fat, pasty face and wildly curly red hair. I really try to get a good look, because the mere sight of him pisses me off royally, and being pissed gives me the firm resolve I need to take myself in hand and stop tearing up like an asshole. Last semester, I flunked his final exam because it consisted solely of the question, What would you do if you were driving along and you stopped to assist a woman who was hitchhiking, and she wanted you to drop her off in an abortion clinic where she was planning to terminate the life of her unborn child? I wrote that I'd drop her off at the clinic. I threw in some now rhetoric. I got to use all these phrases I never get to use, like inchoate masses of non-cognizant tissue, which triggered a renegade frowny face in the margin, and violation of bodily integrity. I referred to the uterus as an impregnable fortress and chuckled happily at my ironic wordplay. Mr. Grayley not only gave me an F for moral ambiguity, but accused me of using an excessive amount of adjectives. Screw me if I was going to let that screw my chances of going to college and getting the hell out of Muskegon, so I got my dad involved. He talks and talks and talks until people capitulate just to shut him up. And the school board decided I could take a makeup exam, which consisted of identifying quotes from the New Testament. You see, the Old Testament is for Jews. Free Willy ends. Now it's that Enigma song with monks chanting to some house music techno beat. What is the point? Why is this school obsessed with Jesus songs set to drum machines? What kind of monks sing to house music, I asked Kyra. She says, you know, the gay monks who like to go clubbing. As a special religious order, I say, like the Franciscan monks, the Francissies, if you will. I will not, she says coolly. We love that. The if-you-will-I-will-not combo. We are cracking up as pictures of the senior fall picnic flash by. Oh, it never gets old, I say. Finally, it's the final slide. A close-up of the sooty red brick facade of Sacred Heart, with its fake pieta in front. The lights come on, and Mr. Grayley, whom the mental giants under the delusion that they're black refer to as G-Man, ascends the stage to staggered shouts of his nickname. Here we go, he says. The moment we've been waiting for, the official results of the class of 1994 mock election. Drum roll, please. Kyra kicks me in the shin, then she lulls her head on my shoulder as Amber Golan is deemed most creative. Scott Branson, king of the mental giants, is voted most athletic. Gretchen is quietest. When this one is announced, Claire McCready, who has lately appointed herself my cross-click ambassador, leans forward at the end of the row and gives me a big toothy grin. I give her a big dorky thumbs up, even though I couldn't give less of a shit. I met Claire back in ninth grade when I was new to Sacred Heart. We live eight blocks apart, so we hung out, but she was a sadistic, psycho bitch. She'd sneak up behind me with a stapler and staple a big hunk of my hair, or take off her nasty, sweaty loafer and shove it in my face, forcing me to smell it. She'd say, "'Your hair is so weird, it's like black people's hair, and you walk like a cowboy.'" When I started making friends with Kyra and Sasha and Gretchen, she announced, I'm moving up in the world, and promptly befriended the mental giants and Amber Golan. Eventually, though, I became Claire's pet. The first day of junior year, in the middle of the cafeteria line, she said, You know, you are so hilarious. Then she announced, 
I thought Emma was the most boring person on earth when I first met her, but oh my god, she is so funny. And her friends stared, like they expected me to do a pratfall. So, when the mock election categories were revealed, Claire kicked off her mission. Christy told me she was putting you down for quietest, she informed me. And I'm like, she is so not quiet, she's hilarious. And Christy said, well, she never talks to me, and I'm like, well, maybe that's because you're a giant bitch. Anyway, don't worry, it won't be you. It is a mixed victory, because I can only assume Claire's influence was responsible for Gretchen taking the title instead of me, and this is the kind of thing that really embarrasses Gretchen. She blushes beet red on a dime. Despite that, she is technically less quiet than me. She can give a presentation in class without shaking and sweating and having a coronary. She never blurts out ridiculous non-sequiturs when addressed by a mental giant. She's not besieged by senseless crying fits. She has a little patron, too, Amber Golan, who is on a crusade to force Gretchen to go to the prom. All the guys think you're really pretty, she told her earnestly one day in the cafeteria. You just need to be more outgoing. Indeed, Gretchen's only real qualification for the title is her blushing. I peer down the aisle. Gretchen's face is so red it's almost glowing. I roll my eyes at her. She stares at the floor. Then, Kyra wins best eyes. Her eyes are blue, and I guess they're nice eyes. When Mr. Grayley announces her name, she turns to me with an unreadable expression, and I reach out a finger and smooth her eyebrows, which, although sparse and blonde, are perpetually disheveled. She puts her head on my shoulder again. Old Shep, I say, and pet her head. We are finally allowed to retire to our sleeping quarters. A little shanty town of rickety-ass cabins crammed on the edge of a gravel trail. Each member of the Sacred Heart class of 94 appears to have the same Sears Roebuck brand of rolling suitcase, and we drag them in unison, an unbroken growl of dozens of tiny wheels on gravel for what feels like about ten miles. Free Willy is stuck in my head. I stay close to Gretchen and Kira and Sasha. I've never been to the Upper Peninsula before. The Sacred Heart bus had to traverse a treacherous swaying bridge over some great lake to get us here, and this landscape is not helping my imminent freakout. The trees are all fascist-looking and crowded together regimentally in gauntlets. I have caught wind of the phrase, mandatory canoe trip. There are vicious rumors of a swimming hole. I feel my heart tightening, and I think for the millionth time that I probably have pleurisy, which the SAT prep guide defined as an inflammation of the thin layers of tissue covering the lungs and the chest cavity. And I trudge along, staring at the triangular guest label on the laboring butts of Amber Golan and Claire, who are accustomed to rustic woodsy jaunts like these from their many consecutive years of posh summer camp. They drag their suitcases with an air of weary entitlement, breaking branches off trees and waving them around idly. They look like they expect the trees to miraculously animate and go fetch them a mint julep. Others, like Scott Branson, who are sent to Sacred Heart for old-fashioned Catholic reasons, not college prep reasons, seem unsure of what to do with all this allotted pastoral leisure time. Smack in the middle of their herd is the contingent represented by Kyra, Gretchen, Sasha, and me, whose parents have nondescript jobs that produce enough income to send us to Sacred Heart without hitting up the congregation for tuition assistance. But we're not getting cars for graduation. My dad... Works at Butterworth Hospital, and he's not a doctor, but it's unclear what exactly he does. I have no clue what Kyra's dad does, besides the fact that he sings in some weird Catholic men's chorus. Sasha's mom teaches community college English. Gretchen's parents are farmers. She's the only one of us who looks at ease in all this flora and fauna. Halfway to the sleeping cabins, a rabbit with a cottontail bounces across our path and stands inches away, staring at us boldly. And we all ooh and high at it, but Gretchen just yawns and says... It probably has rabies, or else it wouldn't come so close to us. She and Sasha wander ahead. Kira and I follow. As we're walking, Josh Bowers catches up to us. 
He's like Indonesian or something, but with eerily translucent and rosy cheeks. He was adopted by blonde do-gooders who would be perfect wasps if they weren't Catholic. Emma, he says to me, what are you doing when school's over? I don't know, I say. I drag my suitcase with enhanced vigor. You don't know, he says. Nope, I say. So you're not doing anything, Josh Bowers says. I'm going to the Citadel. Oh my god, I blurt out in horror. Then more calmly I say, oh. We keep walking. He senses our conversation has reached its peak and he drifts off. Kyra says to me, what the hell was that? I know, I say. I think she's talking about the absurdity of Josh Bowers going out of his way to confide his misogynistic post-high school plans. Why'd you say you're not doing anything, she says. Then she pretends to be me, talking like Scarlett O'Hara. Oh, I'm getting married right out of high school. None of that book learning for me. Whenever I say something stupid, Kara finds it necessary to mimic me in a southern accent. Neither of us has ever been farther south than Indiana. Well, what do you want me to do? Pull out the resume, I say. I don't want to have a big heart-to-heart with that asshole. College, what's that? She's still doing the accent. I'm staying on the plantation. Kyra knows that I'm going to Brandeis, which I chose because it's in New England, and the campus is predominantly Jewish, and there are no Catholics running around. But I try to avoid this subject because it is one of the many topics of conversation that triggers uncontrollable crying jags lately. It's ridiculous. I am not a crier. I never have been a crier. I've been daydreaming for years about escaping this hellhole and being surrounded by liberal and scholarly Zionists. And yet, whenever college is mentioned, especially in a we're-so-proud-of-you-or-we'll-miss-you tone, I start sobbing. And not in a bittersweet, coming-of-age-I'm-at-a-crossroads way. In a major, pathological, impending doom way. Now that the end of my cohabitation with them is in sight, my parents have been extra sweet. They don't even yell at me anymore about being antisocial and having no extracurricular activities. It makes me feel even worse. Like I'm an ungrateful little bitch who's abandoning them for the Jews. It makes me wish I had the kind of parents who beat me with a belt, like on a TV movie of the week I saw called Mommy That Hurts. I'd beat myself with a belt if I thought it would snap me out of this. Afterward, following dinner in the main lodge, and mass in a musty barn-like chapel during which I shook no one's hand at the peace-be-with-you part, I can't sleep. My pleurisy kicks in, and I feel like there's a starfish flexing in my chest. Tomorrow night, this goddamn retreat will be over. In a month and a half, I will graduate. In four months, I will go to college. I used to comfort myself with that thought, like a nest egg. But now I feel the crying jig starting. I have been here too long. I have grown conditioned. I only know how to interact with human beings who are in direct and antagonistic opposition to me. I pound my head softly on the pillow. In movies... The thoughtful outcast girl always has some sort of non-school lifeline, some outlet that affirms her faith in humanity. For instance, a supportive gay guy, or a nice old person who passes on wisdom. I have nothing. I'm not even good with adults. I'm too nervous and shifty-eyed and bitter, and old people hate me. I know this for a fact. We had to do 40 hours of community service in order to graduate, and I did it at Everest Nursing Home, where almost every resident was demented, or extremely crotchety, or just depressing. There was this one lady who sat in her bed all day watching figure skating footage of Nancy Kerrigan over and over and over. She just stared at it listlessly. It made me want to die. I try to match my breathing to Sasha's in the bunk below me, and after a while it works, and I sleep. But then I have a weird dream that my dad is John Lennon, or at least I'm raised to believe he's John Lennon, but he still goes to work every day at Butterworth Hospital. 
Eventually, I realize that John Lennon not only looks nothing like my dad, but is British and also dead. And my mom admits that my dad is delusional, but we should just humor him. So he's sitting around in his suit and bifocals and saying, Ah, yes, that last concert in Candlestick Park was a heady time indeed. And I'm like, Dad, tell me about when you had that bed in for peace. When I wake up, I'm shaking. It's still night. I'm feeling really sad and wanting to talk to my dad on the phone. But I don't know where there is a phone. We are trapped here, with no modern conveniences, and it's like four in the morning. So I get out of bed as quietly as I can and grope my way down the hall to the door, which, to my surprise, is unlocked. Outside, the darkness feels like something touchable pressing against me, like those rough black strips that cover the windshield and car washes. There's a smell of fur and smoke. I just keep slogging through tall, damp grass with no idea where I'm going, and after a while it occurs to me that I am humming the Free Willy song. I punch myself in the stomach. It doesn't feel like anything, so I do it again, but then it hurts, a lot, and I start crying. Snot is coming out of my nose, and I cry, walking along, until my eyes start to adjust to the dark, and I can make out the shapes of trees and clearings and other cabins. The crying thing doesn't even faze me anymore. I'm growing accustomed to it, like a perpetual cough. I know I just have to let it run its course, and eventually the impending doom feeling will stop, and I'll be okay for a while. But then a goose flits by, or maybe a pheasant, reminding me of when I'd walk home from grade school through the noxious birth defect-producing chemical miasma of Muskegon, and I'd daydream about woods and wildlife and pine soul crisp air. I was brainwashed by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And here I am in this lovely natural setting, and I can't even look at a pheasant and think, wow, what a wondrous being. All I can do is criticize it. I think, nice feathers. This exacerbates the crying. And to top it all off, there's a rustling in the reeds about a yard away. What is this, wind in the willows? But it's not another woodland creature. It's a person. And the gate is unmistakably male. I freeze, and stand in a tall clump of some sort of beach grass waiting for the figure to pass. But I can tell he sees me. He's coming toward me, and he's pushing vegetation out of the way, like Conan the Barbarian. And I see the tautness of his neck and the blindly glandular glint in his eye, and the purposeful bawling of his fists, and I think, well, this is it. I am screwed. Whoever this is will probably rape me. And every fear and joy of my life narrows to a terrible and piercing culmination. I curse myself for weighing 98 pounds and actually being proud of that fact. I curse myself for not paying attention to the self-defense guy who visited 10th grade gym class and showed us how to wrench someone's wrist. Who is that? A male voice says. Slightly high, smooth, tempered with self-conscious suavity. The voice of Josh Bowers, future Citadel cadet. Who is that? He says again. And I start crying again, with anger this time, with the helpless draining of all that fizzy adrenaline, the fear less painful than the senseless reprieve. Josh Bowers, whole and confused and harmless, walking out of the bushes. Hey, he says one more time. Who is that? And I cannot say my name. I cannot stand to see the disappointment or derision that will dawn on Josh Bauer's face when he finds out I am not Amber Golan or Claire or even Gretchen, that I am Emma Amaralo and I am having a crying fit in the middle of the woods at 4 a.m. Is that Emma? Josh Bauer says. Then he comes closer. I can see his abnormally rosy cheeks. He smells like shaving cream, which strikes me as ridiculous considering his apparent lack of facial hair follicles or pores. His skin is better than mine. Emma, are you crying? No, I say. I cross my arms and take a couple steps back from him. I'm going for a walk. I can't sleep. Oh my god, he says. You're crying. He says it in this full of childish awe voice. 
No, I'm not, I say. You don't have to deny it, he says. It's a natural human function. Human beings have emotions. Oh, screw you, I say. That doesn't feel as cathartic as I thought it would. I wipe my nose fiercely. Do you want to talk about it, he says. But I remember how he's a member of the Students Helping Students Counseling Brigade, as is Claire, and I refuse to be his case study. No, I say. Josh Bowers sits down on a convenient log. He's wearing his customary dockers and rugby shirt, and I feel underclothed in my pajamas. I couldn't sleep either, he says. He takes a pack of cigarettes out of his pocket and fishes a lighter out. The way his wrists and hands undulate as he does this, and their delicate veins, is attractive. I hate that. He says, want one? No, I say. Then I point and laugh. The impending doom sensation ebbs. Are those Virginia Slims? He shrugs. Yeah, laugh it up. They're my mom's, okay? He exhales smoke. You've come a long way, baby, I say. To my surprise, he laughs loud. I sit down on the opposite end of the log. It's wet. I feel like we're in a living room, he says. Like, this isn't even the real woods. Like, they just took this log and plunked it down in the middle of, like, a stage set. Smoke trails out of his mouth. I don't know what to say to that. Then he says, So are you really not doing anything after school? Are you going to be a hermit and live in a cave? I say, Are you really going to South Carolina to become a brainwashed android? It surprises me when he laughs again. That's the plan, he says. We sit for a while and chat, haltingly, about how much everything sucks. In the moonlight, the hairs on his forearm look silvery and hypersensitive, like cat whiskers. For a second, I feel sort of not myself. Happy. Then I am pissed at myself for feeling happy just because some asshole is talking to me. Then Josh Bowers says, You are going to college, aren't you? I pick up a leaf. It's slimy and appears to be decomposing. I'm going to Brandeis. Well, why are you all embarrassed about it, he says. He inches forward and looks into my face. His eyes are wide. Is that what you were crying about? I stand up, because I realize what he's doing to me. Joke with her. Laugh at her witticisms. Gently lead her to the crucial subject. Claire showed me the Students Helping Students training book with all its guided exercises. Josh Bowers is practicing on me. I will become a test case for next month's Student Helping Students meeting, and Josh Bowers will be given some special badge. I say, I'm going back. Bye. And he's all in my face now with the Barbara Walters what kind of tree would you be look, and I am not falling for it. What, he says. What'd I say? He throws his arms wide open. The tears are coming again. Screw you, I say. It doesn't feel cathartic this time, either. The following morning, no one comments on the fact that I've been wandering the woods weeping half the night like some Bronte sister lass. By ten, though, I am composed. As we're waiting in line for muffins in the main lodge, Amber Golan bounces along and asks of the entire world, Isn't Gretchen so pretty? She's turning her head around, looking for affirmation. Gretchen is bright red. Doesn't she look like Winona Ryder? Kyra says, I think she looks like Winona Judd. Gretchen giggles. Amber says, Oh my god, you guys are so mean to each other. After breakfast, there is an idiotic collage-making exercise. I get stuck in a group with Scott Branson, Amber, and Brady O'Toole, a Limbaugh disciple. You have to add something here, Emma, Brady says. He gestures impatiently at the pile of chopped-up magazines that surround us. I cut out a picture of a sailboat. 
I cut very carefully, so that there are no white edges showing, and I glue it to the sheet of poster board, right between Amber's fluffy white kitten and Scott's Detroit Lions quarterback. So what's the meaning of that, Brady says. I shrug. He told me I had to add something, so I added something. I stare down at the poster board, and it looks as if the kitten is about to take an ominous sailboat journey to see the quarterback. It is an expedition out of which no good can come. After the display of the collages, during which Brady O'Toole announces, and this is Emma's great contribution, while scornfully indicating my sailboat, Mr. Grayley heaves his doughy body up from his cross-legged repose. He claps his hands. All right, people, he says. I want everyone in a circle. I want a big circle right in the middle of the floor. People start wearily dragging chairs. No, Mr. Greeley intones, waving his short arms in protest. On the floor. We're going to sit in a circle on the floor. Suddenly, Kyra is beside me. No, she breathes in my ear. Not a circle of love. Her breath smells sweet and pink like carefree gum. I smile reflexively, but she drifts away. The starfish wakes up inside my chest. A cactus climbs up my throat. Then a boombox is produced, and the Free Willy song soars across the rough-hewn rafters. All around me I am aware of people's heads lowering in staggered motion. They are dropping like flies. They swarm and dip around my peripheral vision. Then I notice I'm taller than everyone else, and it takes me a while to realize it's because I'm the only one still standing up. When I sink to the ground, it feels like a swoon, uncomfortably conscious of my tailbone. We, the Sacred Heart class of 94, are in a raggedy circle. We are eyeing each other. For a moment it occurs to me that Mr. Grayley is about to orchestrate a gladiator cage match to the lush sounds of Free Willy, that this is what they have been training us for, a flesh-and-blood reenactment of the Holy War fought by our school mascot, the Catholic Crusader, in which only the true believers will be weeded out and saved. Then Mr. Grayley says, We're going to go around the circle, and I want everyone to step in the middle and share what they'll miss most about Sacred Heart. Scott Branson is first, and Scott Branson is crying, snuffling, actually, with those shoulder-heaving, rip-snorting, ram-in-heat spasms that pass for crying in mental giant land. He stamps his feet as if about to charge. He chokes out. I love you guys. If anyone ever needs anything, just ask and I'll deliver. I mean it. His sincerity is terrible. Mr. Grayley enters the circle and gives Scott a manly shoulder clap. More mental giants follow, and they are all crying. It's horrifying. Then it's a clump of Limbaugh's all in a row, one after the other, delivering their smooth, polished orations. Some are choked up. Josh Bowers says, I always tried to be a good person. I mean, I'll continue to try to be a good person. I think, I think it's my destiny to help people. His eyes are wide and pliant, and no one mocks him, even though he is a pompous windbag who did not even follow Mr. Grayley's simple instructions. And then there's Kyra. They like Kyra. They're calling for her. Kyra! Kyra! And she languidly slides into the middle and looks all shy and says meekly, Okay, okay, I don't really know what to say, but I don't want you all to beat me. We love you, Kai, Gretchen calls. She and Sasha and Claire have big, transfixed grins on their faces. Their faces are flushed. They have all simultaneously crossed over to the land of those with outward feelings, soft and malleable and unashamed, pure and cushiony as marshmallow fluff. Maybe they have lived there all along. 
They are all believers, my sex-having friends, who will grow up to enter the world and make productive lives for themselves, buffered against emotional impoverishment. They will be normal. They will be healthy. And the Free Willy song, I realize, is on repeat. I have this feeling that I cannot name. It's driving me crazy because I am the crossword queen, the vocabulary vigilante. Nothing in the English language has ever eluded me. And it is ridiculous how I cannot remember what you call it when you know that no matter what you say, what you do, you're screwed. There's a term for this state of mind, a small jeweled box of a word. Claire is in the middle now, and she is not crying at all. She's talking with that voice of hers, each word a little frozen dewdrop, and it's all gibberish to me until she says, I know what I'll miss most. I am going to miss my sweet little Emma, who better write to me when she's at her smarty pants college, because Emma, baby, you are the shit. And a big hurricane descends. She's hauling me to my feet. She's manhandling me. Her head smells like scalp and finesse. And there's a tough, muscular streak under all this puppyish gambling. I see it in her eyes as she looks straight into my face, her righteousness smooth and unbroken as silver plating. And then I know that whatever her politics, whatever shicks a deity she half-assedly believes in, Claire could hold her own at a place like Brandeis. She could never crumble from the inside out. And maybe it's that. Or maybe it's the internal snapshot of me, in college, at some leather-topped desk, obediently writing letters to Claire McCready, as I know I will, that starts the crying. Of course, everyone thinks I'm touched, in a good way. Of course, I even feel the concentrated beam of Mr. Grayley's approval. Of course, they're all thinking, at last, at last. Claire's soft arms are around my ribcage, and she's murmuring, It's okay, it's okay. And there's a smell of sharp fur from the world outside. And no one suspects the truth. I am crying because I, like the clairvoyant Josh Bowers, can see my destiny. I see terminal therapy. I see myself drowning in a sea of dark, progressive heads just like my own, collapsing upon a beautifully manicured campus topiary like a soldier falling on his sword. I see a counselor with a polyblend twin set and deep circles under her eyes, and I see myself going to her every day and talking about my feelings and how I cannot thrive in any but utterly hostile circumstances, how I don't know who I am unless I'm fighting, and what the hell should I do, go back to Muskegon to reclaim my identity? And I can hear the counselor's voice. It's as clear and crystalline as Claire's. It says, yes, go back. Go back to Muskegon with the Jesus freaks and die a thousand deaths every day because that is the only cure for your incessant, debilitating, and constant sense of futility. And I hear myself shouting, that's the word. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.